You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. It's always such a blast when J.C. and I are together recording these interviews. I fly into Nashville every six weeks, and I'm just starting to get to know my way around. Hendersonville is a suburb of Nashville, and that's where today's guest lives. Lily Isaacs is the matriarch of the Isaacs, a multi-award-winning family group whose music is best described as Southern Gospel, Bluegrass, and Americana. But no matter how you describe their music, the magic is in the harmonies, which are so tight, so ethereal. Well, I think they're like a religious experience. Did you hear that? Unbelievable. There is so much to talk to Lily Isaacs about. She was born in Germany right after World War II was over, and both her mother and her father were Polish Jews who nearly starved to death in concentration camps. She grew up in New York City loving the stage and singing. Lily converted to Christianity. She and her ex-husband Joe would go on to form the Isaacs, with their three incredibly musically gifted children, Ben, Sonia, and Becky. At the beginning, though, the kids weren't very excited about performing, so Lily hatched a plan. We had the idea when they were like seven, eight, and ten to let them record their own cassette. And I told them, I said, listen, if you go to the table and sell this cassette, when you sing a couple songs, you can keep the money. Bingo! (laughs) It wasn't long before the group was touring across the United States and around the world with their own brand of deeply moving faith-based music, garnering seven Dove Awards and Grammy nominations. We entered Lily's beautiful home through the garage, which was filled with boxes of Isaac's t-shirts and CDs and snacks and laundry detergent. Lily met us at the door and she was laughing. She said, oh, don't mind that mess. I'm packing for our tour, which begins tomorrow, and we've got to load all this stuff onto the tour bus. She led us into her beautiful, spacious living room, which had this gorgeous vaulted ceiling. And around the corner in her living room was a portrait of her parents on the wall. As we settled in, I congratulated Lily for the Isaac's recent induction into the Grand Ole Opry, where their friend Ricky Skaggs surprised them with the news right there on that iconic stage. He said, we have made you a beautiful plaque here to celebrate your album release, The American Face, on the Grand Ole Opry tonight. Congratulations. And would you like to become members of the Grand Ole Opry? And you lost your mind. It took about 10 seconds to get in your brain that he said that. And I think we were all on the floor. Becky was hopping across the stage. We were crying. It was just like, wow. A dream come true. true. And what a journey this has been for you. It has. Let's go back to your arrival here 
in the United States. I know that you are the daughter of Holocaust survivors. Yes, ma'am. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? So my mother and father are Polish Jews. They were born and raised in Częstochow, Poland. They didn't know each other, two different families. But when World War II broke out and the Nazis invaded Poland, it was September 1st in 1939. They made all of the people in the homes get out on the streets. And there were these big trucks and all these military people walking around the towns, knocking on doors. So their families all went out on the street and they started separating people, you know, one to go here, one to go there. And, and that was the last time my mother or father saw most of their family. They were first in the ghettos. And then my mother wound up in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Germany. And my father wound up in Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany. The last two weeks of their stay in Germany was at Dachau. And they were in Dachau for two weeks. The same time, didn't know each other. After the war was over and they were liberated by our blessed American soldiers and our allies, which I'm so indebted to, they stayed in Germany for a little while. That was in 1945. At that time... Unless you had a sponsor to bring you to a certain country, you had to stay there in Germany. And so my parents wound up in a French army relief camp near Munich. And that's where they were healed back to health. How did your parents survive the concentration camps? Did they share those stories with you at all? My mother was very vocal about her story, and she told us many times of how she was taken out of a line that was going to the gas chamber. A friend of hers pulled her out of that line to go to another line and saved her life, and how they did it without food, and how her sister got sick, and she tried to, to help take care of her. And then my father would tell us that the camps, that you know, they were just given a crust of bread a day with some water, and that some of the German soldiers were nice enough to throw potato peelings in the yards, and they would run out and grab the potato peelings but come to find out, the peeling of the potato has the most vitamins in it, in the potato. So to the day my father died, he ate the potato peeling first. But stories like that, again, I have to say, my mother was more vocal about their experiences during the war, but my father wasn't. My father was an alcoholic. And I never understood that as a child. He worked as a bread baker. You know, you had a book in 2014, and the title really jumped out to me. You Don't Cry Out Loud. The reason I called it You Don't Cry Out Loud is because that's what my mother told us. She said, when we were in the camps, because my girls asked her, she said, you felt all kinds of emotions. You wanted to cry, but you don't cry out loud. That stuck in my head. That's why I called the book that, you know? And you don't want to call attention to yourself. Right. When I was growing up and, you know, we'd walk to school in New York, my father would be stumbling up the street from the subway from working all night, drunk, He always had a bag of bread in his hand from the bakery because he didn't want to go hungry. And he'd yell my name out, wanted to say hello, but I ignored him because I didn't want my friends to see that, you know. And okay, so in 2018, we went to Israel. On one of our journeys, we've gone many, many times, and I didn't know till 2018 that I could enter my mother and father's name into Yad Vashem at the Holocaust Museum in honor of their memory. They have this huge facility, and they put names on the wall. And so I brought the documents that I had, and my family and I sat in a room, and we entered my mother and father both into the Holocaust Hall of Remembrance. But when we got home, like a month later, I started receiving documents from the Holocaust Museum about my parents' families. Let's flash forward to your parents' decision to come to the United States. And you land in New York City, (laughs) and you end up in the Bronx. And that's something that you and I both have in common. My family is from the Bronx. I was born in Manhattan, but they were from the Mashaloo Parkway (laughs) area, Valentine Avenue, Fordham Road, 
roads that you have walked down yourself. So it's many, so cool to get to so know you. It's so cool. Many, many, many times. When we came to America, I was two years old. So I don't remember that. I remember when I was nine years old, we became American citizens at Ellis oh, Island. Do you remember that I at remember all? that. Talk to me about that. Okay. So we were very excited. My parents had to learn English. So they went to night school to learn English. When I started kindergarten, I didn't speak English well. Did My you speak German? Yiddish. Oh, okay. Yiddish in the home. So I think I helped a little, and then they went to night school. But what I remember the most is I had to write my name in cursive. I had to practice because I wanted that to be on that document. And I learned how to write my name. This is 1955. And we went to Ellis Island on the subway, me and my parents, and we stood in a line with 200 people and took an oath. And then we hand on your heart. Hand on your heart. And we were so proud. Oh my goodness. I was so proud of that. You know, it's been a long time, and I remember that. Like it was yesterday. Like it was yesterday. So as you were growing up in the Bronx, tell me a little bit about what the vibe was like in your house when it came to music. When did the music start to touch your soul? Well, I always think I could sing and dance. (laughs) And my mother was a big Broadway show advocate. She loved Broadway music. She loved all those tunes. And, you know, she'd stand in front of the TV if there was a movie on in black and white or singing in the rain. She'd grab an umbrella and dance in front of it. in the rain. She'd dance and sing and embarrass my brother and I. If we had friends (laughs) over, it was embarrassing. But she always sang Broadway show tunes. So I always joined every choir group in my school and I was in all the school plays and that was my life. And I knew my parents would be proud of me. And so I wanted to be a Broadway actress in the Yiddish theater. That was my goal. I went to Christopher Columbus High School. I went to Queens College for two years. And my major was theater arts. I know uh, you married Joe Isaacs. Yes, ma'am. Talk to me a little bit about your decision to leave New York City and also your transition to Christianity. One summer, I took a course at Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was an acting course, and it was a six-week program, and we entered, and I was accepted, so I went. And my roommate was a young lady from Manhattan. She was really great. She was beautiful, and we roomed together for six weeks, but she had a folk guitar, and so did I. And we were all wanting to be Simon and Garfunkel or Bob Dylan. The female version of. (laughs) The female, or Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know. So she was a songwriter, and so was I, and we'd sit around in the dorms, and we'd play our folk guitars and sing along and write songs for the fun of it. In the meanwhile, through the day, studied about acting guild, you know, all that stuff. So after that was over, we got back to New York, and we went to Woodstock. (laughs) Did you go to Woodstock? I went to Woodstock. (laughs) We were oh there for about- <laughs> Please tell me just oh what was that experience like to well, be we in the mud oh and the God. rain? It wasn't as sexy as people think. No, we were like 18, 19 years old. We didn't know what we were doing, but about three or four of us got in a car and we had somebody drive us and we went up there and it was it with so many people and it was, you could barely hear the music and, you know, there were people half naked and there was a lot of dope. And I mean, it wasn't really our vibe, but we had to go, you know? And so we spent a couple, three hours, then we left, but it was just- I do not blame you, honestly. <laughs> honestly. So anyway, got back to New York and uh, we got called by a young man who said, would you like to sing at a party in Long Island? Edie Gourmet and Steve Lawrence were there and they said, would you guys like to just be our act? And we thought, oh, wow, you know, that'd be a big deal. So we Your got mother must have lost her My mind. My mother lost her mind, but Maria and I got our strap. It took us two days to find out what we were going to wear, and we ironed our hair on an ironing board. And we didn't have a flat iron. <laughs> we had to have straight hair like 
Mary Travis, you know. Of course. <laughs> and we got ready, and oh, we were just pumped. So we get to this party, and we sang four or five songs. We all the little guitars. And so this other young man came up to us. He said, would you girls like to audition for Columbia Records? We're looking for new artists. Well, I mean, here we are, like 19 years old. We didn't know what we were doing. We thought he was just flirting with us. So we gave him our number. I thought we'd never hear from him again. Well, we did. And so we found ourselves a month later going to Columbia Studios on 57th Street and auditioning in front of about eight officials there. We got signed to a contract to do a folk album on Columbia Records. That is one of my favorite stories of all time. I can't believe it. So what happened after that? Well, after that, we did record the album. And, you know, I don't know that it went that far. But either way, because of that, we landed... Uh, an engagement in Greenwich Village. So Marie and I had to get an apartment. And that's my singing partner in Greenwich Village on 4th Street. And so we sang at a nightclub called Gertie's Folk City for six weeks. It was amazing. It was one summer and we sang like four nights a week in a little tiny hole in the wall. But Peter Paula Mary been there, Linda Ronstadt been there, Bob Dylan had been there. I mean, all the big time stars. So we thought we were like hot stuff. So it was just me and her and there was an opening act there. And it was a bluegrass band from Kentucky, four guys. And the banjo player's name was Joe Isaacs. And he was a dark, handsome cowboy. I never met anybody like that. In my, we had to have an interpreter. For his Kentucky accent in my New York. I mean, it was just, I don't know. It's, it feels like salt and pepper. It so feels exactly, like yin and yang. <laughs> total opposites. Well, you know, we kind of flirted around. And, you know, before he left New York, we started dating. And, you know, then we couldn't not. And his last name was Isaacs. And the guy that introduced him said he was the only Jewish boy from Kentucky that he knew. And that raised my eyebrows. I thought, well, my parents would like that. And, you know, we were very attracted to each other. So I don't know, found out he wasn't Jewish. That was just the name. But he moved to New York for a few months and started working there. And that's when we dated. We got married in 1970. His family was in Ohio. And at that point, I had taken a leave of absence from college. And the album didn't go anywhere with Columbia. So I don't know. I'm, I think I was ready for a change to just change the world. <laughs> I don't know. It's a long way from the Bronx, though. A long you know? way from the Bronx. The Bronx and Ohio, you know, middle America could not be more different if they tried. Absolutely. You get married. Tell me a little bit about your early life and in particular, your conversion, but then yes. also becoming a mom. Okay. Well, because Joe's work was in Ohio, we moved to a place called Lebanon, Ohio, which was just northwest of Middletown. And I was nervous about it. I really was. But I'd met his family and I didn't have many friends. I didn't even have a driver's license because, you know, in New York, you don't need a car. <laughs> so I had to get a driver's license and I had a job in an office and, you know, life just moved on. We were married about a year. He had a brother that was four years older than he was. He was 27. He got killed in an automobile accident right after Christmas. And my ex-husband is the baby child of 17 children. Wow. Big family. Yes. His father was a preacher in the mountains of Kentucky. So when Delmer was killed, and he was 27, had four small children at home, it was just tragic. Oh, tragic. Nothing like that had ever happened in the family before. So anyway, the funeral was at a big church. That's the first time I'd ever walked in a church in my life, ever, at the funeral. And I didn't know what to do, you know. I mean, but I was part of the family. And even though Joe was raised in a Christian home, he was an unsaved believer. Do you know what I mean? I mean, his father taught him all the values of being a Christian and the Bible, but 
he wasn't there. But that church changed my life because I saw the community of believers and how they were and what they did and the family was so engaging. I still wasn't sold on it, you know, because I knew my parents would be upset with me. What really got me was about a week after the funeral, a lot of his family was going back to Indiana and Kentucky and where everybody lived from Ohio. And so one of Joe's sisters said, let's all meet at this little church where Delmore used to go, his brother, just one time. Let's all get together and we'll have a family service and we'll be together. And I really battled in my mind whether I should go or not. But I hated not to because it was family, so I went. It was a tiny little church, so everybody could see me. I sat in the very, very last pew. And all I could think at the back of my mind is, my parents will kill me if they know I'm in this church. You know, I'm 22, but still. But something happened to me that night. I mean, it wasn't only the grief of the family, but seeing how loving everyone was and this community of people coming together, caring. In New York, growing up in Judaism, you go to the synagogue and the women sit on one side, the men sit on another side, and not to degrade that, it's the way it is. It's Rabbi a- would speak in Hebrew, you'd repeat the prayer, you didn't understand what, half what you were doing. It was beautiful, but it wasn't that feeling, you know? So that night, when the pastor made the invitation, honestly, I didn't go forward. But somewhere in that little back pew, (laughs) I got down on my knees, and I didn't know how to pray. But I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And I said, whatever this is, I want it. I need it. You know, that was the beginning. And it took a while. It really took. I'd never read the Bible. I didn't know how to pray. I, I couldn't say the word Jesus. I was afraid. So then after that night, I started, like, reading the Bible a little bit, you know, and seeing. And what floored me is when I found out that Jesus was a Jew just like me. I didn't know that. We didn't talk about it. And little by little by little, it's like I learned more. And, you know, I started learning how to pray and talk to God in my own language. But what really, really solidified my walk with Christ was when word got back to my parents. I had a cousin visit me from New York. He was on his way to California. And I took him to church. I said, oh, you've got to see this thing. You've got to understand this. You've got to go with me. And his name was Lenny. He said, yeah, I'll go, you know, whatever. So he went. Little did I know that when he went back home, he told my parents that I'd fallen off the deep end, that I was joined this cult, that I was praying to Jesus. So I'll never forget this phone call. I was on my job, regular job in an office, and my mother and dad called. They were on the line together. Just They said, Lily, we found out what you're doing. She said, we don't approve of this. And if you don't give up this craziness, you can forget about a family. We disown you. We don't, we don't ever want to see you again. You can forget about coming home. And my father, who I loved so dearly too, he said, You're, you might as well be in the grave. Why are you doing this to us? Why are you turning your back on your family and your people? And I sobbed. I can't imagine it. I sobbed and I... And I said, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I would never want to hurt you. And why would I hurt them while they'd been through in their life? Why wouldn't I bring them joy, you know? I don't know how I did it, just by the grace of God. I said, well, you know, I love you. I'd never hurt you, but I just can't lose what I found. Do you know it was a year before they talked to me again? I learned more through that trial than anything. When you and Joe combined forces, literally, as husband and wife, and you began singing, I guess on weekends, And you had three small children to take care of. How did motherhood change you, Lily? (laughs) Well, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a mother. I always had a dog (laughs) because it was a big responsibility. Big difference. (laughs) (laughs) But when I got pregnant with Ben, we were very excited. And the good thing about that is when Ben was born is when my parents 
received me because that was he was the first born American child, their first grandchild. Ben was born in 1972, and I was so excited to have this beautiful. He was so beautiful. He's the prettiest little baby I've ever seen, and I couldn't go back to work. I had to stay home with him, and. It was just beautiful to have him. And so we were singing a little bit, you know, and we'd take him. We were in a car and, you know, we'd travel and I sometimes I'd hold him and sing. Sometimes I'd hand him to somebody. And then two years later, I got pregnant with Sonia, my middle one, and almost died having her because I had infectious hepatitis during my pregnancy. I didn't know it, but thank God she was healthy and we got through it. And then a year later... I had Becky, and I said, this is it. I'm done. You know, so... Joe, three is our number. Three That's is it. our number. And they were all like... I mean, when Ben was three, Sonia was one, and Becky was a month old. And I couldn't work anymore, so you should have seen us going to the grocery store. It was interesting, but we traveled. You know what's interesting about what you're saying, too, is bringing me back to... Um, my children are about three years apart, Christopher and Colleen. And you look back on that time in your life, and you wonder... How did I do that? Yeah. Right? With your kids being so close together. So are you telling me that when you and Joe figured out, we can earn a living doing this, yeah. it became a family affair? Sonia picked up the mandolin when she was seven and started playing along with us. Ben was 10 when he played the bass, and Becky was also that age. So as I started developing a love of the music, and they always could sing harmony. They were four or five years old, they'd sing harmony. And would they just, if you were driving along in the car and the radio was on, they'd find the harmony. And you know, we tell them, sing this song and they'd learn it and they just fell into the right part. We didn't have to teach them. It was like totally embedded in them. These kids share maybe the chromosomes of their vocal cords. I don't know, but it's pretty magical. When you first started to hear them harmonizing, were you just in tears? I mean... Oh, it was amazing. I just, you know, listening to them sing harmony, but because they were young... They dreaded going on the road because we, at that time, we were in a van and sometimes they'd have to miss school and their friends. But we had the idea when they were like seven, eight, and 10 to let them record their own cassette. And I told them, I said, listen, if you go to the table and sell this cassette, when you sing a couple of songs, you can keep the money. Bingo. <laughs> so in other words, you bribed your children I bribed my to be children. part of the Isaacs. <laughs> yes. And they'd walk away with $100 a night and they split it and they were happy. So pretty good, right? <laughs> so, you know, but they learned to love it. Was there a moment as the Isaacs were developing, the children are growing up, was there an inflection point, a moment where the career snapped and everything kind of started to rise for you? I do know that with the opportunities of being on the Grand Ole Opry was a big deal. And then we got the attention of the Gaithers and Bill Gaither added us to his roster and we were on tour with them for about 12 years on the road in huge arenas. I think that made a big difference because even being on their videos that are worldwide, that opened up a lot of doors for us there. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was any one particular moment, but through a series of moments in about 15 years, it just, people begin to say, oh, who are these people? Or, you know, and then our names started getting out there. A slow a and process. steady rise, a right? process. In a world of secular music, what do you think was the key for the Isaacs to gather people, to be their fans, to connect with the music you were singing? Well, I know that we're known for a gospel group and people sometimes say we're bluegrass, which we're not. People say we're 
you know, Americana we might be, we might be country a little, we might be this and that. Ben always says, it's easier to define what we're not, but I think we've kind of developed our own niche of who we are because we just, we don't try to find a pattern. We do what feels good in musically and vocally. And to answer your question, I feel like our main goal in everything we do is to bring hope to a hopeless world, to people that are lonely, to people that have had I'm a cancer survivor two times and, and living the life that I did and just sharing our story, all of our family. It's, never, it's not been a bed of roses. We're very transparent on stage. It's like we've all shared our lives with the world to say, listen, we got through this. We made it okay by the help of God. So can you. And so I think through every genre of music that we've gotten an opportunity, we want our songs our spirit, and we never meet strangers because we want to be with the people. I think our main goal is life is to give hope to the hopeless. So in other words, you've been able to connect with every audience because you've shared your own experiences. Yes. You just mentioned your breast cancer diagnosis and you've said now you're a two-time cancer survivor. I know that the song, I'm going to love you through it, the beautiful Martina McBride song was inspired by your journey and written by your daughter, Sonia. Talk a little bit about your breast cancer diagnosis. Well, it was 1983. I was 35 and my kids were young and I found a knot on my breast. I had back surgery before that. I was born with scoliosis. So I never did anything about it. I had a lot of pain that year. So I was in the hospital for a month with that. I was home about six weeks, not wearing, you know, I was just in the house wearing a back brace. And a friend of mine had found a knot on her breast and just out of reflex, I touched my breast in the same area. And lo and behold, I had one too. And it bothered me. So I went to a doctor and it was cancer and I had to go in for surgery and I was just devastated. I thought, Lord, I went through back surgery and I don't want to leave my children again. And so it was scary. It was frightening. I thought I would die. And in 1983, you didn't know a lot about breast cancer. And the word cancer alone sounds like a death sentence. So it was a horrible time. I felt like just abandoned by God. I thought, what is this going on? But I did survive, and they got it all. I didn't have to have any treatments and made it through it. When my daughter, Sonia, and her husband, Jimmy, called me one day, and Sonia had had the idea years ago, like 12 years ago, to write this song. She said, Mom, she said, you know, one out of five women are diagnosed with breast cancer. She said, I want you to tell us your story. What was it like? So I went through that in detail on the phone with them, and like when the doctor called. And when I handed the phone to my husband, because I couldn't even hear anymore, I started weeping when he told me the diagnosis was malignant cancer, and I had to go back in the hospital. And just the fear that was in my heart, and how that my family, my kids crawled up in my lap, and were holding me, and my husband, and my church family, and the love and the support that I got from my family and my community was unbelievable. And that's what carried me through that time you know, of cancer. So that's how they wrote the song. And then about four years ago, I have another, it was a small bat. It was just a little nodule they found in my esophagus. I caught it really early and they got it all out. Again, no issues since then, but it was also frightening. So anytime you're a cancer survivor, you live with that anxiety. How did a cancer diagnosis change you? First of all, the shock of knowing that you can die changes you. And I realized quickly that material things in life are not that important. And I thought what really mattered to me at the time was my family, the people that loved me, not the material things in life. So that's how it changed me, to know my values are different. Yeah, thank God we're getting to do this and that and the other, but 
if you have your family and you have your health, you have everything. Well, speaking of family, tell me about how the dynamic works on stage for the Isaacs. She laughs already because, you know, it's one thing to be their mom, right? Yeah. But now you're, you're part of a group and you're all singing and everyone's got a part. And how's the dynamic on stage? Well, we fight like cats and dogs, but we still love one another. <laughs> My family is very opinionated. All four of us are. So I had to make a conscious choice when my kids got grown enough to, you know, have a voice and we're a partnership, the four of us are, that at home, I'm mom. On the road, I'm a partner. When I listen to your songs, I love them all and the harmony is what stands out for me. It is well with my soul is so beautifully sung that I honestly can't believe some of the harmonies that I hear from the group. think about your body of work and the songs that you have performed, the songs that you have recorded, what's your favorite? What comes to the top of the list for you, Lily? Well, It Is Well With My Soul is a favorite because we find people singing along with us and that's a good feeling. But then when my children get up to that high ending with all those twists and turns, it like blows me away. There's a lot of songs that my daughters have written that move me. Like what? My daughters wrote a song called Shalom My Home that we performed in Jerusalem and that always ties me to my roots. Beautiful, beautiful powerful, powerful, bountiful and free, sacred to every man. Heaven's heaven's earth, on earth, on earth for all the world to see. God touched you. I love singing that. They wrote a song on our 432 album. is very good because we recorded it in the tuning of 432, which is the frequency of God's nature. And there's a song on there called the Hallelujah, You Are Lord of My Heart. Crucified, buried, risen, ascended, soon coming King, Lord, you are. Adonai Elohim, ruler of everything. You 
Every time they sing it, it melts me. The words, the harmony, and I feel the anointing. So to just pick one or the other. Now, our new song, The American Face, gets me every time. Every time. I love that song, and I encourage everyone to go out and buy your brand new album, The American Face. You're back on the road. You'll be singing those songs. Your tour schedule is packed. We're here in your home. I have to tell everyone, we came through your garage, and it looks like you're already getting packed. I see suitcases. (laughs) I see laundry detergent. I see bottles of water. I see t-shirts. I'm sorry. (laughs) You are ready to rock and roll, right? Sorry, I had to see that. Yes. Winds up in my garage. So anyway, yes, yes, What's we're ready. to tour? I mean, it must be exhausting <laughs> and energizing all at the same time. It is. It's exhausting. But because we have a bus, it's not that exhausting because we have a wonderful bus driver. And so we'll get on the bus at night. And most of the time we'll be in bed before 10 or 11 o'clock. And we wake up, we're at the hotel in another state. So it's, it's tiring, but we love it so much. We love our fans. We love what we do. And it is exhausting, but I think it's a calling on our lives where we have to do this. I think this is part of our blood that we have to do what we're doing. It's our calling. What do you wish you knew, Lily, when you first got started in the entertainment business? What have you learned the hard way, maybe? Well, it doesn't come easy. And you have a lot of ups and downs. And don't give up. There were a lot of times that we could have thrown the towel in, whether it be a divorce, whether it be financial struggles, whether it be an argument you had in your family or anything. Things didn't work out or just losses. But I've learned the hard way that if God has a calling on your life to do something, you're going to do that if you just submit yourself to that. And so my advice to anyone that's out there struggling is don't give up. Don't give up your dream. Just because it gets hard doesn't mean it can't happen. If you're dedicated to what you do and turn it over to God, you can do it. God will do it through you. One of the things that Ricky Skaggs said on your great day at the Grand Ole Opry being inducted, he said, the Isaacs are better at giving than receiving. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your special friendship with Ricky and what he just said. Oh my God, we've known Ricky for 30 years and Sharon and Cheryl and Buck and all of them. And, and the, that's the whites, The right? whites, right. And we share so much spiritually. Ricky is such a wonderful man of God and he's such a great entertainer. And my kids growing, grew up listening to Ricky Skaggs. I mean, you know, they'd play his songs all the time in the albums. And we actually had a little private prayer service in our home was for like two or three years, several years ago. And it would be a small group of about 20 artists that live in our area. It was really great. Once a month, we'd get together. And Ricky and Sharon and Cheryl were always there. And we had other artists. And, you know, just to keep it private, I won't say who it was. We'd pray for one another. 
and we would have a meal, and then we just pray. We'd pray for one another, we'd express our needs and our wants, and we'd get in a circle, and we'd really have deep, heavenly prayers over protection. If one of us are sick, we'll text each other. If somebody winds up with something that's wrong, we'll pray for one another. So our relationship with Ricky and the Whites goes way deeper than just being on a stage. So when he was the one that, it was appropriate. And I don't know if many people knew that, but Ricky's a jewel. He's a man of God. He's a a great entertainer and a good man. And we like to give of ourselves, you know. I mean, even if we don't have material things to give, which we try to do that too, is we have a nonprofit organization that we help. Now we're starting to help feed the homeless in America and feed them. We also bless Holocaust survivors in Israel. And we bless these two orphanages in Israel with finances that we collect. We give everything away. So we feel like we give and we want to give. That's what we're supposed to do is give. Well, from your birth in Germany to coming to this country as an immigrant and growing up in the Bronx and then to Ohio and here to Tennessee. This has been such a long journey with so many ups and downs that you've described here in this interview. In your opinion, what is the key to success in country music, gospel music, what you've done with your life? What's been the key to your success? I think just to be yourself. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. And be open. Be transparent with the people that you love. Doesn't mean that everybody in the world has to know what you, who you are. But I love the comment that I get from a lot of promoters that we work for because our agency will always get an email and say, the Isaacs were so great to our crew. The people that are the hard workers behind the scenes. So I think that the key to success is to be kind. I have a little story to tell you about Garth Brooks which makes me know why he is so successful in what he does. One day we had lunch with him in a restaurant and everybody knows Garth Brooks. He's famous. You know, we were just all talking and we walk into this restaurant and it was kind of like we walk through self-service type thing. And there was this little woman, she might've been 85 years old. She ordered and she was taking her tray. He ran up to the front of the line, picked up her tray and walked her to her table and set it down in front of her. Garth Brooks. Then we were sitting and eating our meal, and everybody that came over, he didn't need a bite. He stood up, he took pictures with everyone, he talked, and I'm thinking, okay, that is a man that gives. So he's an example of what I think a real person is, and to be as famous as Garth Brooks is, to have that, I don't know, it's just being real. And I never thought about being famous, and I don't think we're famous, I really don't. I don't think we're a success story. I think we are who we are by the grace of God. I'm grateful for the opportunities that we've had, but I don't think it's gone to our heads that we're that. I would rather be here talking to you and expressing my heart with tears in my eyes than I would be in Carnegie Hall right now. So there's just our hearts. I want to say thank you, Lily Isaacs, for sharing your story with me today for welcoming us to your beautiful home. Best of luck with your tour. The latest album is The American Face. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Lily Isaacs is one of the most inspiring women I have ever been in a room with. Just being in her presence feels special. Hi, I'm JC Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. 
And the moment I found out that Candy and I were going to have the chance to spend our day with Lily, I knew I wanted to talk with her about the advice and the wisdom that she had to share. Be present. Make yourself available. And it doesn't matter what type of venue that you might go to. Try to do your very best. Be the best that you are, even if it's a nightclub that has 10 people in it. Or, you know, if you meet someone, be kind. Pass out your MP3s. Or just be around uh, and show yourself to be a real person in, in that way. And Nashville's full of musicians. And a lot of them are waiters or used to be waiters and waitresses and, you know, work a regular job until that opportunity comes. And, you know, a lot of times our industry is very oversaturated and there's so much great talent there. But being in the right place at the right time makes a difference. I would just say to pursue your dreams, even if it's in the smaller areas of the music industry, to build. And, you know, when you meet people, don't come off like, you know, you're the best or you know it all. Just be humble and and just share with them what's in your heart. The moral of that story is to make the most of every single opportunity. Because when you're just starting out, and even when you're pushing full steam ahead in your career, you cannot waste any chance to climb the ladder of success. Today, I want to share three different opportunities you cannot stand to miss out on. The first is the opportunity to perform live, especially if you're just getting your feet wet in this area. One of the mistakes I often see young artists making is turning down a live performance that feels too small. Like Lily said, even if you get the chance to sing for three people in a nightclub, take it. You need the experience, and more often than not, you'll find that the quality of your audience far outweighs the quantity. If you can make a fan out of those three people, they could likely become 300, 3,000, and even more. The next is a press opportunity. If someone wants to talk to you or about you on television, radio, in print, or even online, there is only one answer. Yes, with a capital Y-E-S. When you are launching your career, you're going to need press to build your credibility. Even the smallest of blogs will be beneficial to you if they are willing to tell their audience about you. Take every opportunity you can when it comes to an interview and always be grateful. Finally, is the opportunity to connect with your fans. Lily said it best, always be kind. Taylor Swift built her entire career with the love of her fans, and sometimes the simplest of actions can create one who will follow you to the ends of the earth. Stay connected with them online. Take photos, sign autographs, and always thank them. The smallest of gestures can make the biggest impact, and that lasting impression will keep them supporting you long after they've discovered your music. If you are one of the lucky artists to be given any of these opportunities, keep your heart and your mind wide open, and it will put you on the path to a long and successful career. More wisdom you can use from Music City Mentor, J.C. Don Valeris, inspired by Lily Isaacs, matriarch of the Isaacs. If you liked country music success stories, check out our website and give our podcast a follow. Please leave a review and follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories. JC and I are proud to be a part of the Mudhouse Media family, and we wanted to lend our support to one of the other podcasts they distribute. Check this one out. Join Patrick McEnroe as he has conversations with incredible guests on his tennis podcast, Holding Court. 
share his love of tennis, the tournaments, events, and news with other professional athletes, artists, Hollywood stars, and CEOs. Exclusively on the Mudhouse Media Network and wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.